Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting into go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. Giannis, did you hear what? Uh, did you hear what happened to Brant's boat? No, you haven't heard this. No. So I'm talking to Danny, my brother, and. He's this like, is yeah. our good buddy Brant, waterfowl biologist yeah, from Anchorage. Danny, Danny says, "Oh yeah, Brant and Matt Carlson are out hunting and hunting moose in my boat." And he said, "You'll notice I said my boat." And I said, "What happened to Brant's boat?" And him and <laughs> him and Danny were fishing cohos on the river, and he said they're just in the like worst possible spot where there's this big tree across most of the river and he said just ripping current through there and Brant's, Danny said he's glad he was nowhere near the tiller or nowhere near the center console for this but Brant's like <laughs> wraps around in front of this big overhanging tree and somehow snags something and pulls out you know that stupid dangerous little safety mm, feature yeah where you pull that rip cord, you're supposed to hook it to your life jacket. Yeah. Or your wrist. Yeah. I think it's more, I think it's like pepper spray, bear spray. It's almost like I'm more scared of bear spray than bears. And I'm almost more scared of those things than I am. Just because if it's not clipped in, then you can't run the engine. Yeah. Which so, is which is where I can see where the story is. Somehow, going. I don't understand how he somehow uh <laughs> 
pulls that thing out. Burn. Engine just stops. And Danny says he turns and here comes this tree. Branch trying to get this little thing up and back in there and shit. And his boat's gone. He said it hit like they had a bunch of all their gear, everything they had with them. Danny said he had time to jump clear that boat. Well, he said for a minute, he said even as it was filling, you could kind of control how it was flooding by how you leaned and where you put your weight. But it was no stopping it. Did he climb out onto the tree? Or he, he climbed out it? on the tree. Yeah. Danny, so the tree is like out of the water and then has a bow in it and goes under. You know how they always do this? Sure. It's like out of the water, then it's under the water, and then it's out of the water. Danny, where he hits, he's in, he's gets in a spot where he can get out on the tree and leap the area. But he said Branch is hanging on. With waders on. With waders that, on and no waders up. He hasn't read the Meat Eater uh, Guide to Wilderness Skills and Survival because if he had, even though it hasn't been released yet, you can order it now on Amazon. He'd hear a big mouthful about putting your belt on. Danny said those waders are just ballooning out. Am I right that he said he had to ditch the waders to get out of there? So he's hang- I don't remember that. Hanging on to the tree. Hanging on to the tree. By this time, the boat's gone. Yeah. Like gone, like under the tree? Underwater. Underwater, it's stuck on the tree still. Engine. Pinned. Pinned. There's- they got a buoy. They t- <laughs> yeah, they're going to go back and get it once the water goes down. They tied a buoy to it. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that's an in- a thing you can claim on know. insurance. I asked him if he uh, tied his na- wrote his name on the buoy or anything, you know? But he said, no, it's just a buoy tied to it. Underwater, pinned. They're waiting for the water to go down and try to get their, at least get the boat and engine. Engine's going to be. He said he didn't lose anything other than like a rod or two. He lost all of his stuff. I thought Danny said he got it all back. No, that's right. He found some of it in back eddies and whatnot, but I don't think he found it. I thought he said all all they lost were like a couple rods. I think Brant lost three or four rods and Danny lost a rod. How far were they from the put-in? Way the hell up. So they just flagged someone down and got a ride out? Do you remember how they got out of there? I know they're way up because I remember the name of the tributary and that that tributary is up a ways. I fished this river with them quite a few times over the years. I don't remember how they got out of there. I don't know if he said. Not quite a few, a few. Man, that's how those accidents go, man. Just from like happy fishing day into all of a sudden it's just terror. Yeah. He said, you know, the, he said it took him a minute to figure out. He said the engine just stopped, you know? And he turns. <laughs> He's like, this isn't good. <laughs> so they were like already close to that snag. <laughs> they just come around it and he says real fast current and they're going up and all of a sudden just like the last thing in the world you want to happen. Oh, yeah, I and bet, he said you I could kind of, I forgot about that part. He's saying you could kind of run around for a minute. It was like, and kind of like control where the water, you know, when he said there was no. And then he said, you know, he got off to the beach and then had to try to, you know, half help try to get Brant out of the water. Not to give Brant a call and console him a little bit. Yeah, well, didn't scare him off rivers. He's out. They were out. It's a good story, though. It is. I'm glad they're both safe. We were on that river one time. This is a funny story about that river. We get to the takeout, and we'd been up, uh, we'd gone up duck hunting. 
and he's got my brother. Brant's doesn't. My brother has another river boat. It's got a go devil on it. You know, like a, it's like an eighteen foot aluminum flat bottom with an air cooled. It's like a it's a it's a Briggs and Stratton golf or lawnmower engine, right? That powers this big long shaft, and we're going up in the dark. Yeah, well, explain the go devil because I mean it's. It's air, yeah, you could run it across wet grass. It's air cooled, and it's a big stainless steel shaft that goes back. They come different lengths, but it go, you can get them. They go back shorter ones. I think this has got about a six foot shaft on it. Yeah, roughly. But they're made so that when the boat is pushed over, say a log, that shaft is at such an angle, and there's, I guess what I don't know if they call it a. a uh, Skag two on the, on that shaft, but that is made so that it, the propeller will just bounce over said log as it comes across it. You know, so yeah. you can basically, like in the south, they run them a lot, and they literally run in inches of water that's sometimes closer to mud than it is water. Yeah, and the the thing about being air cooled is like if anybody's ever run a normal boat motor, it's cooled by the water. Like there's an intake that sucks up. River water, lake water, ocean water, and that cool water coming in is cycled through the engine. So you have to have some water just to cool the engine. But with an air-cooled engine, um, you don't need to worry about that. And then you just you're as you're holding the tiller, you're doing holding the tiller is more like uh three-dimensional. Is that the right word? It's more three-dimensional. When you're holding the tiller, you're not only controlling like side yeah, you're to side. On two axes. You, yeah, where you were, yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. You're working on two axes. When you hold the tiller, you're working on side side up down. So you're digging it in, lifting it out. Anyhow, I remember this day because we're going up duck hunting and it was dark, darkish, and running through. And I remember holding the that tiller and hitting going through a hole that had some salmon in it. They must have, I don't know, it must have been real thick in there. And it was like, doo, 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 doo. you can feel them hitting that shaft coming out, like the shaft going over the mm-hmm. tops. But anyways, we get down after we duck hunt, same place, get down to that takeout. And there's a dude down there pretending to be the world's dumbest tourist. Boy, golly, you can fish and hunt ducks in there. Holy smokes. Let me see one of them ducks. Right? Mm-hmm. And we're just like, you know, entertaining him and amusing him. After a point, he opens up his jacket and pulls it out, and it's a badge. Oh, was he a warden? Yeah. Let's see your licenses. No shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you'd be like, you think that's cool? Look at this bald eagle I shot, you know, or whatever. I don't know. Like, yeah. what? <laughs> I don't know what. <laughs> 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 yeah, I thought that was some shrewd game warden. In Alaska, um, they don't. They don't. It's troopers. So, so like in most states, you got cops, like regular, you know, state police, county sheriff, various municipal agencies. Yep, county. In city. Alaska, it's like troopers, state troopers. There are state troopers who specialize in like a wildlife division, but they're troopers. They're kind of they can do whatever they. I mean, any game warden can kind of like. You know, any game warden can make an arrest for drugs or whatever, or assist and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, in Alaska, it's like troopers. There's not the 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 enforcement arm isn't part of the fishing game agency. The enforcement arm is part of the state police agency. Who was a trooper? Um, youth duck opens. 
for us Saturday. Mm-hmm. I will be taking my kid. We shot a bunch of skeet last weekend. I'm taking him out for ducks. We're going to put our blind out tomorrow. I plan on it being very low pressure. Yeah. He was telling me about how his arm was sore and a little bit bruised up from all the skeet shooting he did, but I think he was being very careful to not like overemphasize it or spend too much time on it. Because he doesn't want to get downgraded back to the 410. Yeah, that or that <laughs> someone would just be like, yeah, well, you know, maybe we don't have to go yet. Like, he's not letting it get in the way. <laughs> he's like, even though my arm hurts, I'm going to go shoot ducks. Yeah, I can't wait, man. Um, I feel like the ducks aren't really acting like ducks yet. I don't think they're. I don't think they know what hits them on a youth duck opener. No, no. you don't even see them flying around right they now. They just kind of like. Oh, I saw them stacking into a cut wheat field. Oh, really? Two days ago. Oh, you did? Yeah, it got oh. me all excited. They just feel like they're out. just kind of like laying around a pond right now. Yeah, they're definitely not as active. as They're like people at the beach. A month from now is what it looks like. Yeah, I'm curious to see how that goes. Uh, finally, another quick thing to touch on. Oh, two things. Some guy sent in a picture. I don't know if this, I think this made the news a little bit. There's like this bear running around with a collar on it. And the bear is like famously, uh, this bear is famously tame. And uh, apparently it's so tame that someone managed to go up to the bear and put a Trump 2020 sticker on his radio collar. Really? So this, well, these, whoever it is, these researchers are now trying to, they're now gunning for whoever was up, <laughs> like basically handling their bear. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. Yeah, like he lured, I don't know, I don't know how you pull that off. He lured it in with some food, put a bumper sticker on its radio collar. Oh, shit. There's a $5,000 reward. <laughs> Oh yeah, Spencer's got the picture right there. That had to have been like that had to have been some drinking going on. Is it a crime? Harassing wildlife, maybe. I don't know. It must be to put a bumper sticker on a bear. (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't know. Who's putting out what state was it? North Carolina. Who's offering the reward? Uh, I don't know. I'm, re- I'm reading about this. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> you get another five grand if you swap it out with one of these stickers. <laughs> yeah, I, I just have a feeling there is no bear anywhere carrying a Biden sticker. Uh, Spencer, real quick before we get started, you like you finally published. It's it's come to re- this is the last we'll ever discuss it. Okay, you finally published the Squirrel Nuts article. Mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking about something this morning at the gym. Okay. They play that stupid show at the gym where the guys like argue. They try to make up, like full on make believe shit to argue about sports. Mm-hmm. First on, day on ESPN. They full on like a producer makes up a thing to argue about. They're, ha- they're for fifteen minutes. I can't. I can never tell what they're saying because the volume's off. But I can like read the, what's on the thing. Subtitles. Apparently, for 15 minutes, they're arguing about, like, so does some, how important is it that some team wins the third game of the season series? And they get dressed up in suits to talk about this, which is the weirdest thing. <laughs> These guys wear some the high fa- dollar suits. They wear the fanciest ass suits to, like, argue about make believe sports stuff. And here we are. The reason I bring this up 
here we are talking about squirrels biting the nuts off of squirrels, and we're able to pull that off in t-shirts. The difference is, too, that, like, um, this is real animosity that we have. For them, it's like they're inventing uh, a side of the argument to argue. But this is real, though. Oh, I'm I'm sure they assign it. I'm sure they're like, they're like, okay, you, uh, you, uh, you act like it doesn't really matter if they win the third game, you know, and, uh, and you over there, you'll act like it really does matter. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah. When the cameras are off there, they're not like continuing this argument. It's not like, not like this in real life. No, but I, it kind of made me feel like I should get a really nice (laughs) suit. And come down here in a really swanky suit sure. and talk about stupid stuff. Mm-hmm. Those wardrobes, I believe, are provided by, you know. If oh, you, that's if why you, they do if, that? If you watch the credits, yeah. I, 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 this is just me guessing, but I'm guessing that, there, that you, there's probably companies that are trying to get into those spots where, you know, you could provide a suit or two to the guys that do whatever oh, show. Oh, that explains a lot, man. Cause it's pretty. They always got different little outfits. Oh on. yeah, they're cutie. They're patootie, like little Barbie dolls. Like super snazzy. Yeah, that's you got to be right. I never thought of that. That makes me actually feel better about it. Anyway, so you finally put the squirrel nuts thing to rest. Me saying that. Me saying that. I've always heard that pine squirrels bite the nuts off other squirrels. Lots of people have heard that. And your official thing now is what? They do not do that. I'll give you credit in two places here. Please. First place I'll give you credit is that this is a common belief. I was wrong about that. You even I, found where it came where it might stem yeah. from. Yeah. Common I, belief. I I had thought that everyone believed this because Steve believed it. And then uh, they had heard Steve say it on the <laughs> yeah. podcast, right? And then it became He thought a thing. all that it could all be traced to that. Sure. Steve was creating Most his own it. myths Most at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I might do sometime. <laughs> <laughs> I was wrong though. We got we got emails from Pennsylvania, Kentucky. Wisconsin, uh, Montana, everywhere in between, saying that, oh, no, my uncle told me this, my neighbor told me this, my haunting mentor told me this. So it was like a fairly common belief that this happens. And you found reference in the old book. Yeah, it did. predates uh, me. Yes, 1956, In the Singing Wilderness. This is the oldest written source that I could track down of it. The book was inspired by Lake Superior's beauty, and it had a whole chapter and who's the author? dedicated to red squirrels. It was written by Sigurd Olson. Are you aware that I won the Seagird F. Olson Nature Writing Award? I'm not. You didn't know that? No. This is good it all full comes around. stuff, though. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. I like actually, it. when I won it, I was actually taken out to his, I was uh, laureled, is that a word? At his, uh, I was I was uh, rewarded, the reward, award, in his old stomping grounds. I like it. And I, Seagird I, I, F. Olson Nature Writing Award. So, so when I saw that article... I felt a kinship. I felt betrayed. I felt a kinship, but also betrayal. <laughs> uh, so Sigrid said that Sigurd. Uh, Sigurd said that this was S I G U R D. He had a whole chapter dedicated to red squirrels. He's kind of like Aldo Leopold, who never got real famous, never got as famous, and then isn't isn't uh, in his time, you know, but isn't uh, he? He didn't kind of like hit the mark. He didn't kind of hit the afterlife jackpot quite like Leopold did. Mm. Fair. Sure. Yeah. So he had a whole chapter dedicated to red squirrels. And in that chapter, he said, I also know that owls like them as well as martins and that they can throw the fear of death into the larger gray squirrels should they invade through the convenient medium of castration. Damn right. So that that was what he said in his book. (laughs) That's the oldest written source I could find. So 
I talked to John Kaprowski. He is the dean at the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming. Prior to that, he had written three books on squirrels. He's won awards for his work on squirrels. Had those books then won the Secret F. Olson Nature <laughs> Writing Award? I don't know about that. I don't that. know, man, but if there's a dude that's written three books on squirrels, we might consider having him down. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would consider him like the authority. Is on he on our, is, I wish Corinne was here. He just moved to the, uh, he, he went from the University of Arizona. Oh yeah. yeah. We're University in contact with this fella. We're in contact with great, him. Great. Great. I think he'd be a good resource. Yeah. I'm going to do a, a Foople episode. That's five, like a five pack. <laughs> so I, I talked to him and then I also talked to Jonathan Odell, who's a small game biologist for the Arizona Game and Fish Department. So Who happens to be a tree squirrel grand slam holder. That's right. So not only is he passionate about squirrels enough to work with them in his job, but he's also what he thinks he's might so be one of the He's so passionate he also shoots them. One of the first people to have North America's squirrel slam, which is killing all eight species. Eight. Hmm. That's a lie, though. You can take it up with him. Well, <laughs> well all eight. What about the Delmarva... Fox squirrel? You can't hunt the dumb Maybe it's like the squirrel. eight huntable ones. Yeah, sure. You, he okay. needs to fix up his language. <laughs> <laughs> or, or you need to, you need to like fix up your language. Because sure. I bet you he wouldn't say that if he's a squirrel man. Okay. Uh, so I talked to those two folks. They both said this doesn't happen. Uh, that's not a reality. They've, they've like watched mating bouts. They've, you know, dedicated their he's life. He's seen squirrels have sex a hundred times. Oh, yeah. He, in the wild. The John Kaprowski... Uh, said that he has spent tens of thousands of hours in detailed behavioral studies watching red squirrels. Red this, squirrels. Yes. Yeah. He said this doesn't happen. But uh, so another place that I'll give you credit, Steve, is that there is like good reason for believing this, right? Like red squirrels are pretty feisty. Um, and then yeah. you, it's also common to kill like impotent squirrels that are males, Uh but what you're really seeing there is when you think you killed a squirrel that had its nuts bitten off is that for part of the year when they're not doing the squirrel rut, when they're not breeding, they'll absorb their testes like up into – I don't think you'd say their abdomen. But they absorb it up into their body and then that, sh that sack shrinks. Okay? So hmm. oftentimes you That's have – That's what happens to Seth now, man. <laughs> <laughs> Only when it's cold. That's right. <laughs> Oftentimes, you have some male squirrels running around that don't have visible testes, and then young of the year squirrels don't usually develop their testes until their first birthday. So you'll see a lot of male squirrels in the woods that appear to not have testicles, but it's not because they got bit off. And you think Seagrid Olson or whoever? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what's you know it's pretty good. I'll tell you another squirrel myth. You think Seagrid Olson? Uh, shoots a gray squirrel, inspects its genitalia, sees that it's missing its scrow, and says to himself, there's only one thing that could explain this. <laughs> a pine squirrel, also known as a red squirrel, has eaten his testicles. I would also imagine that he was not like the source of this, right? Like he had heard he it had from heard his it granddad from his, yeah. and, and so on. But now we're, we're going to put an end to that. You know, uh, you know how it's often said. You're gonna tell me, oh, it's not often said, <laughs> but it is often said that Boone, Daniel Boone, would hunt squirrels by barking them. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, uh, I'm familiar in a way that like I've seen squirrel calls. And like, no, 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 the barking them. It's a shop. It's a shop placement strategy. 
Oh, like shoot next to them. So as not to, so as not to damage the meat of the squirrel. Yes. You get a squirrel plastered against a tree and you hit the tree. You shoot the tree right where the squirrel's making contact with it so that he is concussed. And he was probably doing this with a musket ball, right? No, he would have had a rifle. He would have had a rifle. Okay. He would have had a Kentucky rifle. But not a shotgun. No, but he would have been shooting like a, a rifled flintlock. Rifled flintlock, okay. Well, the feller that claims to have done that with Boone, he even says like what river they were on and what year it was and that Boone loved to eat squirrels and loved to hunt squirrels and would bark the squirrels. Later historians looked and Boone wasn't even in that state that year. So it's like, did the guy, you know. Did he mess it up or just lied about it? Yeah. Was it John Filson? I don't know. Did he mess it up? Was he just being like he had heard something and wanted to attribute it? I think there's an endless the way, amount. Just of bullshit. Like, just I don't, I'm not saying it's bullshit, but right. when we were kids, we used to take uh, all kinds of ball bearings and wrap them up in masking tape and shoot them off our slingshots thinking that we would create a shotgun-like effect <laughs> if you hit a tree near a squirrel or bird. <laughs> I think there's like an endless amount of fact checking you can do with stuff like Boone and Crockett and Hugh Glass and all those folks that it's just like, it's hard to even start down that wormhole because it would just like never end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like it though. I'm glad that we, you finally put some effort into that because it, it made some gravy. <laughs> Well, I don't know, because I still, when we're talking about strange human behaviors, Rick Smith, the cameraman, likes to say, (laughs) there are 7 billion people on this planet. So am I surprised that someone did that? No. (laughs) Now I'm like this. You tell me that somewhere at some point in time, a red squirrel's never bit another squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not common. Jonathan, Jonathan Odell, the squirrel slam holder, did say that. He's like, like the squirrels will get tangled up and they'll bite each other and they'll wrestle and it gets like violent. Um, he's like, they won't intentionally go for the testicles, but there's probably been instances where they get yeah. the testicles. Yeah. Boy, so. that's a good time to sneak in there and kill a whole pile of them. <laughs> you see, oh, if they're going at it like that. Yeah. You see all the time on like uh, Nature's Metal and those Instagram accounts where squirrels will get their nuts hung up on like feeders and fences and stuff. I'm sure they eventually rip them off. Yeah. Well, and then somebody commented on your Instagram post, Steve, and they said, well, I don't know. We, uh, we live in an area that used to have a lot of gray squirrels. And then red squirrels moved in, and all the gray squirrels disappeared, mm-hmm. furthering that they do actually castrate them. Like, <laughs> Rather well, than just displace them. Right. It's not yeah, like I white tails. I, I saw that. Some guys like someone white tails displace mule deer. They're biting all their nuts off. I, I, <laughs> I was that guy. Oh, I wrote yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was you. <laughs> all righty, all righty, all righty. All right, what we're doing now, we're uh, in honor of or in celebration of the the – the ninth season, our ninth season, which is a five pack of episodes. There's more episodes coming up soon. Um, of Me Eater hit, hit, is out on Netflix, available for viewing now. And so every time we launch new episodes, we get like a bunch of questions. And oftentimes we get a bunch of the same questions. 
Like people watch it and certain things percolate through the collective brain. And then we, this, this time around, we went and solicited those questions. And then we commissioned uh, Spencer here to come in and ask those questions. And to answer the questions, we have people who are very, very close, who are all present for all production. Seth, you didn't miss any, did you, Seth? Nope, not last year. I was there. Seth was there. Seth, do you now that I have my own flashing beam? Um. Oh, when I gave Travis Barton the welder, mm-hmm. uh, this is the first flashing beam he's stand he's ever worked on. He does a lot of decorative stuff. You gave him my stand. He wanted to see your stand yeah. to replicate it for my fleshing beam. What do you think? Uh, you know how your how the the tensioner on your adjustable part. I told him to turn that into a hand crank, so you didn't need to get out a hex head wrench to do it. That's a good idea. But then he thought, what if that bolt has sentimental value? So he's producing a whole new T bolt. Oh, with nice. a T grip on it, and you'll still have the sentimental bolt. On your thing. It's not sentimental at all. Now I'm going to have my own beam, and Seth's going to mentor me. Yep. What's the origin of your beam? Did you make it? His old man made it. No, my old, someone made, my old man had it made by, I don't remember who, someone, actually might have been my buddy, Rusty Fetzer, his dad might have done it. I don't remember. Who Who welded up the stand? I think it was my buddy's dad. He's a great welder. You know what uh, Travis Barton thinks? That that he used in the construction of that stand, what? he thinks there's like a a, a hex shaped shaft. Yeah, he thinks that that's off an old chisel. Might be. Yeah, I don't remember who welded it. He also thinks it's very dirty. Oh, it's covered <laughs> in fat and blood. Yeah, he commented on it. Mold. He commented on what he might catch from that thing. <laughs> I don't clean it. Yeah. Okay, so where were we? Oh, yeah. Are you, like, happy or intimidated that I'm getting into beaver fleshing? Well, I'm not intimidated yet because I still have to teach you how to do it. Mm. But, I'm no, nice. it's it's good because, uh, you know, what? How, how many beavers we catch? 30 or? Yeah. That's daunting when you got 30 <laughs> of them in the freezer. So it's nice to know that you could do half of them. You know, and there's a part of a mentor-mentee in the sort of uh, – trajectory of a mentor mentee relationship Mm -hmm. uh there's sort of like a playbook of how those relationships work there comes a part in the mentor mentee relationship when the mentee me yeah actually turns against the mentor (laughs) why it's just it's just like a thing that happens and there's that you can study this you can study this where where are we at in that relationship i thought <laughs> I thought you were going to say where the mentee gets better and starts teaching the mentor stuff. No, he becomes like dismissive of probably like some kind of psychology about like they don't like the behold, they don't like to feel beholden. Yeah. So then they need to get to a point where they like they have like outshined or yeah, there, there's a part of that. There, there's a part where we will turn against one another. There's this probably saying. flesh in different areas of the office. Yeah. <laughs> From like Seth's From my, perspective, yeah. Seth would be like, I taught him everything he knows. And now he acts like he came up with it. But no, no, no. Seth is saying, I taught him everything he knows, but I didn't teach him everything I know. Oh. So he's going <laughs> to he's gonna hold back now, knowing that you're going to turn on him. Seth, if you, gonna, if you... Go ahead. I was going to say, I'll keep 
some real hot tips. There you go. That I won't share with him. He's going to teach me his like signature stroke, and then I'm going to tell people that I made up that stroke. Well, the only problem is he went with you. You went with a different fleshing knife. Also, I went with an ensemble. Yeah, we'll have to see how that is. I'm Seth skept- uses, I'm skeptical. Seth uses the famous um necker. Yeah, but I've been here. I was reading on little comment sections about the necker ain't all that anymore. Yeah, maybe maybe it's not. I bought an ensemble made by. It's made by like Dexter. Those fellas been in the beaver process in business for about a couple hundred years. Maybe they got something going on. I don't know. Seth, if you, get, with a question. If you oh, get up ahead. in the morning, I got a question for Seth. You, <laughs> you get up in the this morning. This is from a listener. <laughs> this is from Yanni's brain. You didn't do any heavy partying. It's just a regular old morning. You get yourself a cup of coffee and you got your mind set on flesh and a beaver. You used to put on your apron. Everything's there. At how I'll long? point out that this never uh, happens. How many this minutes? This never <laughs> ever happens. What's the what's the length of time it take you just to knock one out? Oh, well, it very much heavily depends on the size. A big beaver takes a shitload of time. Like how much time? I think I did the last time I kept track, I did one big beaver per hour. On the board. That's like flesh and put on the board. Those guys in Minnesota that we're going to that hang ain't out too with. too bad. No, those guys in Minnesota we're going to hang out with this year. He says it's, uh, I think he says 10, 10, and 10. 10 to skin, 10 to flesh, 10 to get it on the board. 30 minutes start to finish. Who, I didn't. Dude, I don't know about this adventure. You guys cut me out of. They're better than me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dude I met in, uh, what the hell's that town? Name some towns way up in northern Minnesota where guys would trap a lot of beavers. Bemidji. They got the number one Ducks Unlimited college chapter. Way the hell up in Bemidji. I met those kids and they gave me a Ducks Unlimited college chapter hoodie up in Bemidji. Anyways, okay. I met him. He's a, this guy like is a Joe Beaver. It's not his name. His name's Mike, actually. This guy's name's Joe Beaver, and I want to go out there. One of my problems, though, with with speed on flashing right now is my knife is dull. Mm-hmm. And, and you won't to, let me sharpen it. Well, I'm afraid. Yeah. Spencer, how interested do you think people are in this conversation? Well, I think fairly interesting. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't want to bore them. Especially since it, like, stretches beyond the podcast, right? There's videos of you guys mm-hmm. fleshing Instagram posts. The problem with Yanni's question is Seth never has waked, woken up and fleshed a beaver. <laughs> I've done that before. He fleshes beaver at night if you cajole him. If you cajole him. He likes to flesh around six, I like, I, around five or six o'clock. I shoot my rifles in the morning, flesh the beavers in the evening. Mm-hmm. That's how it goes. He kind of gets in the mood mid-afternoon, late afternoon sometimes. I was going to say, I've seen him here in the office all times of the day. Well, th- mostly because I'll get the beavers out in the morning, let them thaw, and then mm-hmm. by evening, they're ready to flesh. Yeah, that's a good explanation. So that's how that works. Yeah. All right, let's do a uh, season nine question. <laughs> First question, what was the full conversation like between Jesse and JT arguing over keeping that tanker redfish? Danny? It, 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 we showed it. I think we did a really good job of, of, uh, of showing what it was. That There wasn't much more to it. it uh, 
you know, JT's kind of like, yeah, you know, usually I let him go, but if you want to keep it, please do. And Jesse's like, yeah, I do. And <laughs> JT stuck a knife across its gills, and that was the end of it. Yeah, I think that JT, uh, he's torn. JT Van Zandt, he's torn. Like, he's in different directions because he's a guide, so he wants you to have fun. He no, he recognizes that it's a a good fishery that's well managed, but he's cognizant of not being abusive of that. And I think that that he lets far more go than he keeps. He's leery of keeping him, killing him, and throwing him in a cooler just for the sake of doing that. You know, and yeah, the, it's not something he promotes. Yeah, but when it's you know, I think that he he gets on board with keeping a fish. Um, if he knows that it's going to be treated well, respectfully, and consumed quickly, then I think it makes him feel better. If you said, what I want to do is get it and then freeze it and then put it in my freezer and then wait a year and then throw it out because it's freezer burned, I think the Jesse or I think the JT would be very, very not cool about it. All right. I know it wasn't JT style, but did you all consider? Wade fishing when you did the episode in Rockport. That is not not JT style. You're saying it is JT style. He does like to do that, and I have done that with him. It wasn't warm while we were down there, so that probably played into it. But no, he'll get out and chase him on foot. If you want to have a hell of, I don't know if you've seen it, people have seen his show. If you want to have a hell of a good day of uh, fishing, go book. What's he call his outfit? It's like JT Van Zant, Rockport, Texas. Yeah, I don't know if he has like a name of the outfitter. I don't know if he does either. JT Van Zant, Rockport, Texas. Redfish and sea trout. I would suggest going when he says you ought to go. Because I've gone when he says you, I've gone when he says is, you know, he guides all the damn time. He takes like, I think he like just one month a year or something he doesn't guide. But he'll kind of tell you, like we've gone out when he was when he said, "Yeah, we we'll find fish," but it's not like the best time of year. And then we went out when he said, "This is the time to go." And holy cow, man! JTVanZant.com. That's where you can find them. Book trips. Were you there when it was supposed to be good, dude? You have never seen fish like what we saw when we were filming that episode. I've never seen fish like that. We one time, we weren't even really filming anymore, man. We're like, kind of like got our most, we put some of it in. We kind of got everything we wanted to do done. We were heading out one day and like the wind had switched or something. And there's like this channel. He guides in this real flat stuff and it's just like channels and flats and, you know, how do you describe it? Very intercoastal. Yeah, intercoastal, like estuary-type water, you know, that's uh, sandy, you know, shallow, lots of grass poking up everywhere here and there, and just little braids and channels and islands, and uh, maze-like. I mean, you could get lost in there in in a heartbeat, and it opens up into little bays and... You know, stuff that if you don't know how to get out of it and then the then the water drops out of the tide, boy, you could be there for the tide cycle. And this dude knows, like, what the fish are doing, man. And he, we were kind of done for the day and heading out, and the wind had switched, and so it was blowing water. I think that's what I was like, blowing water into these channels. 
because the fish like to find current. And the current can come from a variety of ways, like tide, wind, whatever. And we get into this spot and we pull over. And it was like, I'm not, it was just. Every cast. I at one, it was every cast, but to this point, I actually had more fish than casts at one point. I was at 11 fish and 10 casts because one of the times I just had my, I took the fish off and had my grub in the water and a redfish grabbed it. So that put me 11 fish, 10 casts. I've never seen anything like it, man. Like, and then you're out there with them and you think, you think like, holy cow, this place is full of fish. But I think it's probably quite plausible that you go down there and rent a boat and not catch shit either. But oh he, yeah, but he just knows like what's going on and, and this little spot right here right now, like or later in the day this little spot, or they're not in this little spot, which must mean they're in this little spot, and it gives you the illusion that like any moron could go in there and catch a bunch of fish. Right on the next episode when you were chasing the guy and the guy told you to shoot again, did it go against your beliefs? And that he thought, and that he doubted that you had great shot placement the first time. Did you feel obligated to shoot again when he told you to? No. No, but you're like you're highly um, impressionable in moments like that. And and uh, so I think that same question pointed out like that you were there was two. So we had multiple guided trips in this episode. So we were guided by JT Van Zant. We were guided on that Neil guy deal, and the Neil guy deal was we, we like kind of like we, we we sort of through social connections knew a um, social connections had a connection to to a ranch, and the ranch does allow some guided hunting on there. And the guy that owns the place is like coming out to hunt. I'd prefer that one of our guides went out and accompanied you guys. He knows what's up. Um, the guy was totally cool. The guy was not like obstructionist at all, very knowledgeable. And those Neil guy are famous for not dying when shot. And you have really thick, thick brush. It's like you get up high on something, it's just like this like eight, I don't know how tall, just this very thick brush extends for, you know, miles and miles and miles. And that guy was saying, you hit them wrong and they make it in there he goes, once they get into that brush, I get a sinking feeling. They, he's like, they, they, he reiterated, they don't bleed well. They have a very thick hide. Um, he just was paranoid about losing them. And yeah, I, I believe you even shot the heart, didn't you? I shot the top of the heart right off. And there was almost no blood. And this thing, <laughs> dude, it got up and ran like, so he... So he had already set it up that, uh, like, very, very knowledgeable dude. He had already set it up, like, listen, man, these things get in the brush and they vanish. Yeah, he said multiple times, shoot until you can't, you're either down or they're in the brush. Yeah, and he said, you go and look and you don't find blood. He goes, I just, like, you know, we do everything we can do. But he said, it's just, so when he said do that, no, I didn't, I mean, I was just, he was there, he was there to, be helpful and was helpful and was totally cool. So he had no regrets about pumping two in him. No, plus the thing's huge. I mean, I think if you were out hunting pronghorn or something and and 
you can see every which way for a million miles and you're hunting an animal that's famous for like not taking a hit very well, then I would have not done it. But when you got a guy that kind of has devoted his life to the whole thing and the guy says, shoot, I think you probably ought to shoot. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times, I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance, and man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash eater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash meat eater. Make sure you use code meat eater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order.
All right, does Steve write a journal day-to-day to narrate the show, or does he just watch the footage and write something up after? Yanni keeps a journal. Just Yanni? Yep, just Not me. that kind of journal. Sometimes uh, Seth helps. Yep. But uh, yeah, during every day, we sort we keep a log that uh, has just the, the major happenings of the day and what time that they happened. So it is sort of like a journal, so you kind of know what went down in the day. And then if there's something that happens, like an interesting conversation or a moment, let's just say a nil guy gets shot, you know, you write down that at uh, 12.05, nil guy got shot. And then there was a butchering scene afterwards and so on and so forth. Um, and also you you take note of conversations and whatnot even. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, especially good ones, you know, because those are the ones that go really well when you then we turn those notes into a document called producer notes, which we hand off to the editors. And it's sort of like a roadmap for the editors because they watch the footage. And even though you think as much as we roll – that they would be able to watch the footage and have a great idea of what happened, but it's just not that way. I mean, what they see is, uh, you know, 10% of what actually happened. And so they need sort of like a, a roadmap and an outline to understand what went down over the course of a shoot. Is that how it's always been, or did it evolve to become this? No, it's, I was trained to do that. In terms of the VO writing, when the editor, so the editor gets it, we usually have a conversation, Yanni will lay out what's up, an editor still has a lot of freedom to kind of find what they want to find in there, but then the editor will put in something called scratch VO because they sort of need to like create a bed for VO that doesn't mess up the pacing. So by the time I write the actual VO, um, you're typically aware of like what kind of chunk of time, what kind of chunk of time you're filling there. And, um, and it goes like through a thing called a, there's a, we do a process that has a rough cut and a fine cut, but I'm usually like, when it comes to actually like writing the stuff, I'm usually filling in, um, writing over the top of something that the editor knows ought to be addressed. And that's how that process goes. I'm actually curious on what you use for bags that you keep meat in. When you're when it's in your pack, also do you just put your backpack in the washing machine to get the blood out? I'll take the blood out. No, Yanni will take the blood out one because he's he's got a whole thing. Okay, I'll take the bag one. When we take an animal apart in the field, um, we use breathable game bags. So when a quarter you know, a leg, a back strap, a rib slab, boned out meat, whatever. It generally goes, generally speaking, goes directly from the carcass to a bag. Unless there's a nice, less the, the, there's no bugs around and there's a nice place to hang it while you work. You know, you might have a little stob sticking off a tree and you could hang a cord around there and let it do its thing and dry Yeah, out. or sometimes we'll make like a, almost like a trellis. Yeah. You know, out of some fallen logs. And let it out because it is nice for this reason that to let some of the blood either drain off of it if it is super bloody or uh, and even to let the meat just kind of get like that air mm-hmm. dry crust on it, you know, before you put it into the game bag. Yeah, that that's not. And if it's the winter time, you know, there's usually always a way to do it. Sometimes you're in a place where everything's just grubby and sandy. 
Like when we were hunting Oryx this year in New Mexico, there'd have been like no, I mean, it's just dust and sand and bugs and it just goes into a breathable bag. I used to use a type of bag. A lot of people use them. I think they're just inexpensive. Looks like cheesecloth, called Alaska game bags. I think there's various companies that make them. But the thing about them is that the flies can lay eggs through the fabric. Uh, and some dirt passes through them. But they're inexpensive and they're disposable. But now um, we use them um, reusable, fly-proof, breathable bags. You might think of it as sort of a very lightweight, souped-up pillowcase with a drawstring on it. Goes into those. And then I keep in my pack at all times, I buy contractor bags by the box, so 50 or whatever. And I just keep a contractor bag in my back. And the bottom, the very bottom of my backpack is always a contractor bag, which can be used for setting stuff on. You can make a poncho out of it, whatever. But when I put it in my pack, I, I line my pack with the contractor bag, put the game bag in there. And then you don't want to leave it in there for, you know, days on end, but for a couple hour hike or whatever, that's what I do. Cause I just get so sick cleaning my damn backpack all the time. So I line it with a contractor bag. And then when I get where I'm going, I promptly take the breathable game bag. Because that, that's not breathable. Take the breathable game bag back out. Yeah. If one does get blood all over their pack, which is inevitable. Yeah. Well, and there's another system too, I, which I use this year packing some, some of my bull off the hill in Colorado. And I ended up just using the Stone Glacier load cell, mm-hmm. which it took me a while to understand that that's – literally what it's meant for it's it's basically their version of a game bag that but it fits perfectly in that on that load shelf yeah. right and you know what oh, you're talking about the actual bag yeah yeah like i used to even in the beginning oh you was, said load cell i thought you said shelf i got what you're cell, saying yeah. yeah and it basically looks like almost like a like a roll top dry bag cause it's got a roll top on it but it's not meant to be a waterproof bag it doesn't have tape seams um, it's so that if, if blood is still coming out of your meat, it's meant to be able to leak out and for air to go, you know, through the fabric. Yeah, no flies gonna lay. But it's like it's shit. just the perfect shape that when you pack it full, it's plenty of meat to carry. It's gonna be heavy. I mean, you're gonna have sixty pounds of meat if you fill it to the brim, maybe more. But it just fits in that load shelf just perfectly. And you could also put the contractor bag with the game bag inside of it in that load shelf too. But there, the load shelf itself is coated in like this waterproof fabric and then the fabric that's on the the backpacks inside that faces your back on the outside is also waterproof so any blood that goes towards the backpack doesn't go through it doesn't get to your gear it doesn't really soak in sometimes the edges will get some blood that happened to us in colorado and i think as long as you get to it like the day over the next day all i did was had like a bowl of soapy warm water I found a scrub brush under the kitchen sink where we were staying, and I put 10 minutes of elbow grease into it and then hit it with the hose, and my pack was clean. If it was super soaked, I guess you could take it off and run it through the, through the wash, but I think the key is to get it to it quickly. Now, I have also in the past, which works pretty slick, is I think what you were talking about earlier is used hydrogen peroxide to cause the, yeah. the, the blood to kind of foam and bubble up, and then you just basically dump that on there, scrub it, rinse it off. Dump some on there, scrub it, rinse it off. And that'll help pull blood out of fabric. Well, you know what's interesting? We, When we were caribou hunting this year, my boy got a 
one of those red-legged flies in his against his eardrum. It was making him nauseous. Oh, like a like it just flew in there. Yeah, it was like affecting his balance, and making him nauseous. And uh, put hydrogen peroxide in there. Holy shit! Did that thing come out of there in a hurry? Like bubbled him right out. Nice. Did he? Did your son know what was going on? Oh yeah. Whoa. He didn't like it one bit. You just happened to have some peroxide with no, you. We were at. We were boning out meat back at the bush pilot strip. And a woman there was like, I came running in with him and I was going to try to get it out with water. And she's like, no, I'll put hydrogen peroxide in there. And one drop of that shit in that bug was out of there. You know, bubbled. That's a hot tip. Mm. Yeah, that is a hot tip. Yeah, that lodged, dislodged them in a hurry, man. Was, was there panic from father and son there or just son? No, I don't wouldn't say I panicked. I mean, I didn't think that we were going to never get it out of there. <laughs> I was eager to get it out of there, though. Um, before we leave the subject, be careful with hydrogen peroxide because I think you can leave it on fabrics too long and it could actually start to eat away. It's hard your, on the at, stitching. At your fabric, yeah. Um, the thing I found, too, is people think they got their pack clean and they didn't because you lay it out in sun and your pack stops smelling and then the minute it rains. Oh, yeah. It's like, you didn't get that clean. Yeah. And that's a bad smell, man. Yeah. Now, Stone Glacier's got a, uh, there's, they have a real nice tutorial video um, if you need to know how to cl- clean it back well. I notice you guys are only running one clip off your binos instead of one on each side. Damn straight. What's the reason for that? Paul Lewis thinks we're goofy for doing that. Oh, he does? Yeah. He's way wrong. <laughs> Explain to me better <laughs> what this listener is referring to. Okay. I use everyone I everyone I hang out with. The, like it's the best one out there. Is there's a, a in the old days you just wore your binoculars around your neck, okay? Mm-hmm. And then came the days of the. Then came days. Oh, we used to do binos around your neck. Then you go to the drugstore and get surgical tubing. Oh. And run surgical tubing around your back and clip it into the connection point where the bino harness where the where the neck strap is. So that when you're creeping up on a deer or whatever, your the surgical tubing keeps your binos from bouncing around. A little innovators over there at the Renella. Well, camp. no, we stole the idea, and we'd also put a Prusik. You'd have that surgical tubing tie into a piece of paracord, and there'd be like a little Prusik knot so around that paracord. So, you, so as you took layers on and off, you could cinch up and down. We kind of stole that idea somehow. Then came the bino harness. No, you oh. forget. You're forgetting the uh, <laughs> the elastic band harness that everybody ran for oh, a long yeah, time. Yeah, literally a pair of suspenders. Yeah, yeah. What was that company that like first made those? I had one of those things. Maybe Butler Creek. But yeah, I think it was, was Butler it? Creek. But I mean, everybody made them eventually. Yeah, I mean, Leopold would have one. Sus- Look like suspenders. Made them. Yeah, yeah. Bella's had them. But yeah, and they were better than just running the neck strap with the surgical tubing. Then came. I want to quick talk about the custom. Uh, bi- I got sick of the back before I had a bino harness. I got sick of that feeling on my neck. Mm-hmm. I took an old pair of neoprene waders and cut a very healthy chunk of neoprene and made a custom neck strap so that I had neoprene wader material. Then I stitched in my nylon webbing into that, and that was comfortable. 
very comfortable. Sounds comfortable. And then I had the surgical tubing thing. But then, then came the suspenders, whatever the hell they call those. But I think a lot of hunters are still stuck on that evolution. Oh, yeah. There's still guys. No, there's guys that much prefer yeah. the suspenders. Yep. I yeah. saw a bunch of dudes this weekend wear them. Yeah, hmm. I think they, the one, I think, thing that they have is that there is no lid. And so they're, they're, they are more accessible, right? If you're, if you're hot in on a stock, yeah. you know. But as soon as the dust kicks up and it starts to rain or snow, man, you can't see anything through your body. Yeah, or you go anyway. to climb over a barbed wire fence and it gets hung up because they still flop around. They do flop. But if you're out there mixing it up and stuff, just get a harness. Yeah. It's like a little pouch. It's a little pouch. We've got, like, I use them. Our camera guys like them so much. They started using bino pouches just to keep their gear in. And then they started running around even in cities working on other projects. Like Mo would be in some restaurant filming no reservations or parts unknown with a bino harness on with his camera gear in it. FHF now makes a chest rig. Yep. And the camera guys like those because you can fit all manner of garbage and a camera in it. Yep. Like when Mo Fallon discovered one, he goes, I can't believe I've gone through my whole life wasting that piece of real estate. On my chest. Yeah. Like it hasn't done me any good. Now it's like my storage area. But if you have a bino harness and don't uh, clip them in, you'll be like Giannis. Giannis Mm -hmm. was jumping over a creek one time and his binos fell out of his bino harness and they weren't clicked in. They weren't. Well, no, because I was using a less thought out of lower quality. Was you using a magnet kind? No, it had a clip in the front. I'm not going to mention the brand, but there was no tether option. Oh. At all. Couldn't even tether if you wanted to. No, it was just a clip in the front. And that was the other thing. So you had to have that thing clipped. Remember those things? They fell out twice. Yeah. Fell out into a raging crick. Yeah. Hunting bears. And we looked and looked. And best we can tell, they're in the ocean. It was a <laughs> it was a rager, man. Yeah, a little bit of a bummer. Like we were man. like feeling around in the any little pools down below them. Just, I mean, you could jump this thing almost. And we're like fe- palming around, rolling your yeah. sleeves up, no, you feeling could. around in little pools, and then you go to the next pool and feel around and be like, "What's well, got to be in the next pool?" And the next pool and feel around. It was just wide. <laughs> it was just wide enough and raging enough that we took our packs off and threw them across, <laughs> and then like. You know, people would just kind of stand on the far side when you jump to grab your arm and pull you over. But it was raging enough that had you just cannonballed into it, you would have gone for a ride yeah. for sure. Sucked him away. So, so that so wouldn't why, have happened to him had he clipped in. But why clipping one side instead of both? Okay, yeah, way so better. That's so the way better. So the way that it hangs. Oh. The way they're clipped in on an FHF system is coming off the shoulder straps that go up and over your shoulder into those. Um, into like the adjustment section, there's a very thin but strong piece of, um, I don't know. Webbing. 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 That's connected to a small clip. And there's one on each side. And then the, uh, you know, male end of that, I think it's male on your shoulder strap and the female end you attach to the binoculars themselves. And so binoculars have two attachment points. The harness has two attachment points and you clip them in. We do one... For a bunch of reasons. The one I (laughs) usually think of is that there's often times when you want to share your binoculars with someone. 
And instead of unclipping two, you just unclip one, pass them over. But that seems like something it's, unique to you guys. Yeah, it's how no, often it, are you out with somebody the reason, that does not buy those? I'm gonna beat Paul Lewis's ass. So <laughs> there's two of them on there. There's two of them on there. I don't care what kind of stuff they taught him in the cops. I'll take them. <laughs> there's two of them on there because, like Yanni said, people are like, well, they must need two because there's two sides to the binoculars. But I always put my binoculars on a tripod. My kids are always like, give me the binoculars, give me the binoculars. Why go like clip, clip? It's only meant to keep you from losing it. But I feel like the sharing of binoculars is something that's like sort of unique to when you're with cameramen that don't have binos no, or when you're my with kids uh, okay. and putting them on my tripod. I just don't need to tripod. do two. And when it is hanging there, I kind of prefer, I like how it hangs. Mm. Is, is there a preferred side? Like if you're left-handed right versus hand right-handed? Side. Right-hand side. I would never do it on the left side. <laughs> and all, all three of you are like this. I can't. No, even. I used to be, but I went back to two. Wow. Oh. You know, like just because I like it better. I like when they're hanging. I a couple times, you know, if you don't, um, if you don't like button up your harness, yeah, and you bend over, they could they can fall out. And Not if they're clipped on the right side, well, yeah, no, they they fall out and they would just be clipped to one, and it do like the old swing around. And just when they fall out, does this happen to you? Yeah, when they fall out, did you get hurt? No. When they fall out and there's two, it just plops out and it's still hanging right there. What's the next question? I thought that was a silly question, but I'm in. I, uh, I, I like that. I don't mind unsnapping the two little clips and okay. put them on my tripod. I go so far as to get rid of the other clip. <laughs> I take it off the bino and I unthread it out of the harness and put it in a place where I put all of them. Yeah, I have a nice Top little, drawer, left cabinet. I have a little toward collection. The front. All those things are sitting there. <laughs> I have a little collection. I don't know. I should just take them back to FHF. Let them rework them. Here, here's make a new set. When you were hunting in Wyoming, what hat was Giannis wearing? I believe they must be talking about my Stormy Cromer. Oh, there's yeah. a good story about this Stormy Cromer. There is? Yeah, oh, that the oh, game wore. Oh, yeah. Well, that was the one prior to that. But, uh, yeah, it's a Stormy Cromer. It's a, uh, I don't know. It's a Michigan some, hat, some, right? Yeah, it's a Michigan hat. You see a lot of ranchers wearing them. A lot of the ranchers wear, like, the more, like, wooly version, which has, like, much deeper ear flaps that come all the way down. It kind of covers the nape of your neck. But, uh, yeah, I like it. It's made out of wool. It's uh, it's warm. It's got, like, it's got a short brim, so it doesn't really get, get in the way when I'm wanting to shoot my No, my it's rifle. a good hat, man. You really like that hat. Yeah. I've had a couple, but the first one I had one time, I was, I think I saw the game worn pulled over. So I pulled in behind him just to chat, see if I could work out some, you know, game location info out of him. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, I must have been, I was wearing the hat and he said, uh, you know, that next season you might want to get a new Cromer because that one ain't quite Hunter's <laughs> Orange anymore. <laughs> um but I mean, it was five, six years old, you know, and I think just being a dyed wool fabric, you know, as Colorado sun beats it up. And I'll point out that I don't let it just ride around on my dashboard. I looked it up and they are out of Michigan and their tagline is the original winter cap. I don't know about that. Beaver. Beaver was the original winter cap. <laughs> All right. Someone says, I need to know what the detachable tripod gun mount was on the Wyoming hunt. Spartan. That's a good bipod mount. Very good bipod mount. What how it works is that you in the old days you'd get a 
The count the springs on them. Yeah. You want to mention the company's name? No, they make a great product. Yeah. Harris. Harris. I used to have those. Man, you get into like an alder choked hellhole though. Those springs, <laughs> they, are pr- open. they are prone to some snagging. <laughs> they're not good for thick brush. But anyways, and you, they're very stable though. And you'd like, but it stays, you, you put it on there and it's on there. The bipod for the most part, you know, you don't like take it on and off throughout the day. But uh, a Spartan bipod is like a very nice, good bipod. And what you do is you put like this attachment on the forearm of your firearm, and then it you replace your front swivel stud. Yeah. So the thing you use, like that little screw stud that you use to hook, to put your sling on, you take that out, screw in the attachment point for the bipod, and then that plate, that attachment plate, has another hole that you that accommodates your sling. Then you carry in your pocket and a holster in your pack or whatever the bipod prongs, and it's a magnetic fitting. It's very satisfying. No, it goes like click. Maybe a try like a imagine like a suction with a thunk at the end. Not like that. Not like it's like yeah. That's it. That's it. The other one was too moist. (laughs) Does it go with you on every hunt? Yeah, well, no, some just depends. Anything dry, open, anything, any kind of open country stuff, yeah. But I mean, if I was sitting, you know, out of hunting in a deer blind, I, I don't imagine I would tote it around. Yeah, if I think there's going to be shots over two hundred yards, then I'll definitely have it with me. They they make a thing where you can put it on a tripod too, so you know yeah. you can be standing. You don't always have to be prone. You can clip it into a tripod and be standing or whatever. It's a very nice product. Oh, and you can do that with any tripod head? Like they just have like a quarter 20 attachment? The, yeah, it's I think it's called the, the Davros head or something. It's made for going on tripods, and they make their own tripod. Oh, but you got to have the whole head. It's I just can... the head. It's not. It's very simple. Small little head that you can screw on to like a quarter 20. Hmm. To look into that. All right, why do you use zip ties instead of electrical tape? To attach your tag to an animal. I have no idea. I have no idea. I've had great luck with them. <laughs> I carry zip ties in my kit. Until Wyoming. Until Wyoming. <laughs> that was like part of the episode. That's not what happened. It wasn't the zip ties fault. Oh, no, it is what happened. Would have oh, that that's happened what he's getting if, at? Yeah, like would have that happened if you had electrical tape? I can't remember the details. No. That deer took a tumble when we were trying to... Didn't it? Yeah. It kind of kind of slid down the hill. I feel rocky... like the zip tie failed. That's yeah. right. The zip tie broke off. Yeah. It was a real steep slope. And it, instead of like dragging the deer, the deer kind of was, it was one of those situations where instead of dragging deer, the deer's dragging you. Like once you got it out of its final resting place, um, it was just going. Yeah. Snow covered, very steep, icy hillside. And I think, and I, and it slipped out of my hand. Yeah, and it slid down the hill a little bit through some and like so, scree yeah, rock. Yeah, and a rock or something busted the zip tie. Yeah. And then we looked and looked for it in the dark. And then came back. And I was going to, you know, I was going to, I was like figuring out we're going to try to contact fishing game. It had been validated. So we're like making a plan on how to contact the fishing game agency and say we have an untagged deer because he's like simply lost the tag. And then went back in the daylight and scoured around and found the tag. But yeah, no real reason why. 
And that didn't change your mind either? Like you'll still be carrying zip ties this year? It wasn't until this gentleman, I'm assuming it's a gentleman, it wasn't until this gentleman flagged it in my head that I realized that I finally <laughs> put it together that it might be better to use electric tape. Yeah, it's a Some, tough one. I don't carry both usually in my little kit that you know rides in my backpack along with me all the time. But I, I just feel in my head right now that I'd have more uses for the three or four zip ties that I usually pack in there than I would if I had a little mini roller electrical tape i usually have a little mini roll of duct tape in there which, yep. I, which I could use i keep it wrapped too. around my cigarette lighters some states tags though if you put tape on them would totally destroy them yeah that's kind of the other thing about this yeah Zip when you go to wall. peel the tape off you're going to screw your thing up especially now that more and more states are going where you print your tags at home yeah you're not going to duct tape that on there and take it off again you got to put it into a little baggie and then duct and then yeah, is it tired? I have. I've used everything from paracord, tied it on there, taped it on there, med tape, duct tape, black tape, zip ties. I don't know. It seems like a lot of tags actually have two holes that are just the right size to slip that eight, exactly eight or correct. ten inch zip tie or paracord They're through there. Punched four. Yeah, a zip tie. Um, I used to use a big pin when I lived in Pennsylvania. And you and you put the tag through the pin and then stick it through the ear, like a safety pin. Yeah, like a big safety pin. Bucks and does. Yeah, hmm. yeah. See, for us, it's usually not a problem because if we if we butcher in the field, oh, I mean, I usually I forgot. That's my reason why I usually don't attach anything because legally you don't have to attach it until you're moving the carcass, and so usually everything's chopped up and quartered. And we usually find if you need to have evidence of sex, we find the bag that has the testy in it and then attach the tag to it inside the bag and close the bag it's not you know that's another argument for zip ties is on antlerless game i zip tie my tag to the gambrel to the achilles tendon of the animal i think a lot of states should take to learn a lesson from alaska alaska doesn't except for metal locking tags which you need, non-residents need. You validate your tag and keep it on your person. They don't make you go through the sort of, like, it, it seems silly that you need to fasten it to the thing anyways. If it's with the person who has the thing in their possession, why can't they just keep it all nice and clean in their pocket? Well, I think that, yeah, what we're talking about here in five years is probably going to be yeah. pretty archaic because pretty soon it'll all be on your phone. Yeah. Has the crew ever thought about using drones to scout for deer? We talk about it all the time, but it's becoming increasingly illegal. But we do talk about, like the other day we were having this conversation, hunting moose and real thick willows. And I was like, man, no wonder Alaska made drones legal because imagine you can fly a drone up and find all the moose. And our camera guy was like, I think that like the res just, he goes, I think that seems like, and he does a lot of drone work for all, all kinds of reasons, different kind of stuff from like real estate stuff to wildlife stuff. But um, he's like the resolution and the usage, he goes, it just doesn't really work that way. I, I don't know that I believe that it doesn't work that way because there are cases of people finding elk and moose and stuff with drones, but it's, it's illegal in 20 some States now. He's crazy to think that wouldn't work. Rick Smith. I, imagine antelope 
on that countryside. And you fly that thing up and do a 360 pan, you don't think you'd see the herd of 20 out a half mile? I should have argued with them yeah. more. <laughs> I guess it all depends. Some of those, like a lot of those, when you're shooting like landscapes with a drone, a lot of those lenses are real wide. Yeah. So when you look straight down, it's just like, you don't know what you're looking at, you know? The animals are, if you're hot, if you're too, like if you're, I guess if you're low enough, you could see them. But at that point, they're going to hear the thing. But the question was, has have was have we ever done it? Have you ever thought about doing it? We've definitely talked about how it's illegal and if it ought to be and how helpful would it be anyway and in what cases have they been abused. So beyond thinking about it, we've like spent quite a bit of time discussing this subject. All of the states that the, the, the states that ban drones are the states where drones would actually be helpful. Open like places with a lot of open country. And we we never fly drones on hunt days. Yeah. Like when we're out shooting these shows, all our drone stuff is like days that we're not hunting. For that reason? Just so there's never any confusion, right? <laughs> Yeah, there's no regulations about flying a drone, like for say in Mexico. But you would, you, there's no way you're gonna find like a coos deer with a drone. I yeah. don't care. You're not gonna find one. Mm-mm. Do you ever use tracking dogs to find injured game? I have not used a dog that is trained and kept for the sole purpose of finding game in order to find game. I've not either. But I think, I feel like we're going to be seeing more and more of that. Mm-hmm. And I actually have a guy offered me one who lives near where we're hunting in Wisconsin in November. And he has a Drothauer or however you say those fancy dogs from Germany. And uh, so, yeah, if we have a bad hit, then we'll we'll try it out. Why didn't you try tracking your Colorado bull that night? Because... The best hope was that the bull would lay down. And when you get a hit on something and you don't hear it like crash down and die or watch it crash down and die, um, you don't want to pressure it. Because if it is injured and runs off a ways and it's not being pursued, your hope is that it lays down and dies. Once you get a sense that something's not immediately mortally wounded and you start pursuing it, you will be bumping it out of its bed. And if you bump it out of its bed and scare it, it will cover a distance in minutes that it might otherwise cover in many hours. And if it's not bleeding sufficiently to follow its progress, you will lose it while it's hauling ass away from you. When if it just lays down and dies, you have a good chance, a better chance of finding it because you're at least in the right area and you haven't sent it off into the next county. So following it at once you get down and take a look and you're like, this isn't going to go well, don't pressure it. Give it time. Regardless, you shouldn't really pursue anything for an hour. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't there. You were there with, I don't know, two, you yeah. have three guys with you but um what you gotta remember too is that tra- blood trailing man it is mentally and physically exhausting if you're like really on a hard blood trail 
two or three hours of that, I've seen it, man. People just start falling apart because mm-hmm. you're just not used to putting that sort of effort with your, I don't know if it's your eyes and having to stare like that and look and the emotions that you're going through, but it's a lot of work. And so, you know, you shot him towards the evening and you guys spent, I'm guessing, a couple, three hours on it and then decided to bail. I mean, it's a smart move to do because like you're saying, you want to let him rest, but you get some rest yourself. And then in the morning, you're nice and fresh. And all of a sudden those pin drops that you might've missed at night under a headlamp, the next morning you can see them and find them and, you know. We we spent a few hours, but we didn't move a hundred yards. Yeah, it was because there's just, and there's also like all these little indicators you get. There's little indicators you get when you're on something that's got a bad hit where you either see things, you either reconstruct things and realize that like, oh no, we're in good shape. It's gonna die. Or you start putting the pieces of the puzzle together and you start getting a sense that it wasn't a mortal. Um, that is not mortally wounded, or there's a good strong likelihood that it's not mortally wounded, and that would go by kind of like how the blood, how much blood, the patterns that the blood falls, the coloration of the blood, what we might what might be with blood. Does the blood fall on its own, or does it only get brushed off when it brushes against branches? When it brushes against branches, how high on the branch or low on the branch is the blood? Does it look oxygenated? Does it have little chunks of muscle in it? What's the coloration of the hair where the hit was on the ground? What what were the sort of mannerisms or the movements of the animal post-hit? And you get a sense that, like, yay or nay. I mean, sometimes you'll see something, you know, like get hit by a bow, and you'll start, you'll go poke your nose in there down the, 10 yards down the trail and it looked like someone had two cans of red spray paint going through the woods, going psh, 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 out each side. And then I'm not too worried about everybody hanging around for three hours waiting. Cause you just know what's going to be waiting for you there. You got something that's punched through both lungs. And every time it's heart beats, it's shooting out a, it's shooting out an ounce of blood out of each side. And then you're like, let's go. Someone else wants to know, aren't you afraid that scavengers or insects will damage the carcass when you leave an animal lay like that? Absolutely. Not insects. Just rot from heat. Just, yeah. they got all the guts in them. That stuff generates a ton of heat. Generates heat, like, even when they're dead. They got so much, it's like big guts of lawn, wet lawn trimmings in their stomachs. It just creates heat. They rot. The first place they rot is around the ball joints on their back hams and just spreads from there. Yeah, man. And then and then not so much bugs right away, but but uh bears, coyotes. Yeah. It's all everything, all this stuff, man. It's hard. You can't be all like rigid about it. It's like all this stuff is like, well, there's this, but then there's that. Well, there's this, but then there's that. There's this, but then there's that. And then you factor it out and, and try to make a call. It's never like, I know exactly what needs to be done, boys. It's more like, ah. It's <laughs> kind of what it sounds like. Someone writes, I want to hear you discuss the efficiency and ethics around using bows and muzzleloaders. Efficacy. 
is lower because you can't shoot them as far and they're less forgiving. So, but efficacy, efficacy is a hard thing to talk about because there's like, I don't know, I guess like a, a rocket propelled grenade would have tremendous efficacy. You'd probably get like, there's probably like military weapons, I suppose. Like very, very high caliber, I don't know, like truck mounted machine. I don't know. There's like ways to get efficacy that borders over into a um borders over into an overkill situation, or that efficacy is so high that not many people will be able to have the opportunity to go try hunting. Yeah, too many people are too good and if everybody's filling their tags then a lot less people are going to get the opportunity to go hunting someone could say there's great efficacy in being able to use um night vision a high-powered rifle with night vision you can get up get close they don't know you're there you get great clean shot placement great efficacy we should allow people to hunt at night with night vision because it's better efficacy um, you know, at a point you're, you have a finite resource and the ability to, the ability for a bunch of people to go hunting relies on the fact that not everybody's going to get one. Feels like you just answered this, but somebody asks, why doesn't Colorado let you use a scope on your muzzleloader for that elk season? They're just trying to, I think my guess is they're trying to widen the gulf. They're trying to widen the gulf between firearm and muzzleloader. Yeah, I mean, they're trying to keep it a primitive weapon, which is why muzzleloader seasons were came out in the first place, I believe, yeah. right? It's like they're a little bit better than a bow, but they're not a modern firearm, right? And it gives you a chance to have more seasons, more opportunity. It's like you're creating opportunity. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches 
give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Someone else says, after your Colorado hunt, are you still an advocate for muzzleloaders or are you less likely to support them? I have absolutely no problem with muzzleloaders. Um, I have no problem with muzzleloader seasons. I actually appreciate, as much as it didn't work out for me, I appreciate Colorado's efforts to keep muzzleloaders as a sort of distinct weapon class. Um. Muzzleloader tech. If you had to say, if it's there's muzzleloader technology out there, you know, there's some very some phenomenal muzzleloaders, man. There's guys that are getting 300 yard accuracy out of scope muzzleloaders. Uh, so yeah, I applaud it. Pennsylvania has a muzzleloader season where it has to be a flintlock. It's got to be like the 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 hammer. There's a piece of flint that strikes a piece of steel and shoots a little spark into a hole, which ignites the gunpowder. They go, Psh. yeah. I grew up. I grew up doing that. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Did you ever kill a deer doing it? Yeah. Oh, you did it with a muzzleloader. At one at one point, I'd killed more deer with a muzzleloader than bow and rifle. Combined. But what about with a flintlock? Yeah, all oh, flintlock. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I've never even shot a inline muzzleloader until I moved out here. Oh, okay. Yeah, if I was ruler of the. Uh, 
United States all of game laws, I would make them all muzzleloader seasons like that. Yep. Flintlock, iron sights. They're fun. Loose powder. Yep. We loose powder and we'd melt down lead and make our own balls. By loose powder, you know, indulge me for a minute there, Spencer. So if you went and looked at, we really were talking about Daniel Boone. Daniel Boone hunted what? He had a rifle that was spiraled barrel, so it was rifled. He had a rifle that was rifled. He would take a powder horn and pour loose gunpowder, gunpowder down his barrel. Then he would take a patch of cloth and put bear grease on it and nestle a lead sphere into that greased piece of fabric and cram that down the barrel. And that's your ball, your wadding, and your loose gunpowder. And you compact that. And then the firing mechanism was a little piece of flint that would strike a little piece of metal and shoot a spark into a hole. Well, you'd prime it. So it's like... There's a flash pan. Yeah, there's a flash pan with like 7G or 5G or whatever, like a finer gunpowder. Yeah, like we used, uh, I think it was like like or 2F in the barrel and 3F in the pan. I think your Fs are too low. Or, yeah, maybe 3 in the barrel, 4 in the pan or something like that. Yeah, and, uh, so when you hear it, it was just a flash in the pan. Yeah. What you're saying is... The flint hits the frizzen, causes a spark, the spark falls into the pan, and ignites the powder in the pan, which goes through the touch hole, and ignites the powder in the barrel. A lot can go wrong. A lot can go wrong. <laughs> How and much even time? when it does go a lot right. of time, <laughs> and there's a lot of time and a lot of room for flinching. How much Yeah, you got to hold your bead, because it goes like, boom. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I got a question about oh, but Daniel can, Boone. Can I finish my point real quick, yeah. though? Now what those things are is now you got like a little cake of powder that you can just carry around in your pocket. Yeah. Or a pellet, even. Yeah. So it's like, and there's no bare, there's no greased piece of fabric. You got a conical-shaped bullet that's like shaped just like a bullet. It rests inside a piece of plastic, which is a sabot. And then you can have powder that isn't even powder. It's like, and then you have a primer that is like a little cap that you carry around. And it, when you touch that trigger, you know that some bitch is going off. I mean, it's just going off. Yeah. And you put a scope on top. You, if you go watch our Maryland Sika episode, you'll see us hunt with these setups. You're up there like, when I see one, I'm getting them. And that's not the feeling you get with an old style muzzleloader. No, not at all. Is it a known fact that Boone did not measure his powder? I don't. You, I don't think that they measured the powder in just reading accounts of how people did. I think they free poured and, and eyeballed. I don't think they were measuring their. I, I'm sure that at times, maybe during a shooting match or whatever, sure they would measure their powder. But you read many accounts of just like. I think it's just something you did all the time, your whole life, the same way when you're putting salt on something you're cooking. Yeah. I think they just opened that horn up and knew what they were looking at. Yeah. You measured like how many hundred grain charges until you just kind of like, you could dump it out on the table and he'd be like, that's a hundred grains, that's a hundred grains, that's a hundred grains. And free port. Okay. Someone says, I totally respect the idea of not taking a different elk in Colorado, but why did you not spend the rest of the trip looking for the one that you wounded? 
It's a great question. Uh, needle in a haystack, man. Um, yeah, it's a great question. I don't even know what it would have be. I don't. I don't know what it would have. Uh, what doing so? What it would have begun to look like? Uh, to like stay out and try to find. Yeah, good question. No answer. Yeah, I don't know if you'd be looking for a dead animal or looking for a live one that's you know holed up somewhere with a wound on its you know chest or shoulder. But yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. Someone says, hello, Latvian Eagle slash Long Tong Yanni slash Latvian Lover. I would love to know more details about the distance and specifics of the deer drive in Wyoming because that shit happened quick and it looked like a real crack shot. <laughs> I think that was my favorite part of season nine was, was seeing, drive? seeing an executed deer drive in the backcountry like that. That was, that was special. That might be the only one that ever gets executed ever anywhere no i'm sure there's a listener that has a hole that they drive deer out of all the time but no that uh outfitter Stuart peterson he's been on that hillside on that mountain quite a few times and if you could see the whole mountain i think we did a pretty good job in that diagram kind of showing where there was timber and where there wasn't but the diagram is great when it because it showed the diagram first. And I was like, well, this is oddly specific. And then <laughs> it goes back to showing like the hunt. And I was like, oh, that's because they made it very specific. Yeah, totally. Yeah. No, I mean, there was a very, and we had glassed this strip of timber numerous occasions in the prior, you know, five or six days looking for deer in there. And it did not look like much. And it looked like it was just a strip of raggedy, you know, wind blown, uh, I'm guessing fir trees, you know, a lot of that stuff that they call the shintangle. Um, is that what they call it? Shintang. Shintang, yeah, because it tangles your shins when you walk through it. Just like grows low because it's just got to be like a t- trying to like grab onto the rocks because it just like this, these, this strip of timber was just on a basically a giant scree slide hillside. I mean, that went on for you know, a thousand yards either direction and hundreds of yards up and down until you either made the ridge or you actually dropped down into like the main timber, which would have been, you know, below tree or at tree line. And, uh, he just knew that they hole up in there. And that morning we had bumped deer that had headed that way. So he thought it was a pretty good chance there'd be deer in there. And again, he had executed this drive prior to doing it that time. He told us a couple stories about other hunters that had sat where he was sending me. And where I went to, we had already spent a couple of days sitting and looking at deer in the bowl below us on a ridge across from us. So I had a pretty good familiarity with when he was explaining to me where to go with what it looked like and what I was going to see there. And I knew what he was talking about when he was talking about game trails that wrapped around that hill and where they went, because again, I'd been sitting above them for a couple days. So it didn't happen much faster. I mean, there was enough time that uh, the photographer and I walked to the spot. That might have taken five to ten minutes. We set up there. There was enough time for me to kind of like I did. I set up like a long-range shooting position. If they kind of came out low and got farther, I needed a better rest. And then I had sort of a shorter-range shooting position where I used my tripod and I had a V attached to the top of it where I was going to shoot, you know, 
100 yards or less or whatever. Um, and I sort of explained that to the camera a few times. And we were like, all right, now it's time to wait. We'll see what happens. And it probably wasn't more than five or 10 minutes. And you got to remember when a deer is pushed on a drive, they move so quick through that country that the, the pusher is probably just standing at that deer's bed when you shoot, even though you might be a thousand yards away from it. I mean, that's how fast they move from that spot to where, where I was. There's a good chance that Stuart had just gotten to those beds and said, oh, look at that. There was some deer bedded here. And then he probably heard me shoot. You know? They left those, just like we showed in the diagram, they left that little strip of timber and just wrapped right around the horn of that ridge and uh, didn't drop down, didn't really come up, and then came basically right underneath me. And as far as the crack shot goes, I saw him coming from a ways. Um, the photographer that I had with me, is, is he's a great photographer, but just hasn't done too much work with us yet. And so... It was happening fast. That deer was coming, and it was in a lot of, a lot of small trees. It was hard for him to pick up. But um, that deer was walking pretty slowly by the time he finally got over to me, and I think I shot him at like 60 or 70 yards. It was really a pretty easy shot. On your muley, it sounded like you were sawing through the brisket. If so, have you ever tried sawing right next to it where the ribs attach? It's all cartilage, and it's way easier even on elk. W-A-A-A-A-A-A-Y. Way easier. So much easier. Making a point there. <clears throat> was that for me? Uh, for either one of you. Who uh, was... I'll tell, I know the guy. I know what he's talking about. Okay. Yeah, it's easy to cut over there, but here's the thing. When you come up with your gutting incision, I'm going up the middle anyway, the hair is real short along the brisket. And so I cut there, and then I cut there with my saw, which isn't, I don't, I don't view it as very hard. And then you can just kind of open it up, and it's like opening up center base in the middle, and you can get in there and cut the, the esophagus and, and uh, trachea and everything and, and gut it. And you can go down to the side, but then the other thing is when I take the rib slabs off, this way they're symmetrical. But sure, especially if someone had skinned it all the way back, I might just go up the side like that. Yeah, I guess on a deer, I don't know, we might shave away that brisket and just throw it into the grind pile. But... Uh... I don't know why it looked hard because I think zipping through the brisket of a deer is usually pretty dang easy. Yeah, I don't. It's it's enough easy enough. Where I don't really think about it being a thing. How did you feel when you were looking for your tag and you came back and found that the guide had cut your deer clean in half? Did you see it as disrespectful to your kill? Absolutely not. These guys we we're hunting with some guides, Landon and Stuart Peterson, Crooked Sky Outfitters. And these guys are like phenomenal hunters, very hard workers, but they are like, they're horsemen, they're packers. If you like a big part of their job is they are packers. They know how to move things from point A to point B, what be it people or materials on horses. He has a way to carry a mule deer where you got a horse with a pannier on each side and he knows where to cut it so that that front half and back half weigh the same. When you're loading horses, it might not seem like this would be like an actual thing. A pound matters. The, 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 the panniers on a pack saddle, like, they're balanced there. They're, just, they're setting there balanced. Um, there's some lashing and stuff, but primarily, like, if they're out of balance, it's not going to ride. 
So he goes up to the third rib, whatever the hell he is. He cuts the deer off at the knees, goes up to the third or fourth rib, whatever, cuts the thing in half, knows how to tilt its head over to make up the difference, puts it in a pannier, and he knows that that mule deer is now cut in two halves that weigh the exact same amount. I'd never seen that before, and I thought my eyes were deceiving me in the episode. I thought someone else had killed the deer <laughs> in the like time that they had last shown your mule deer, and then when they came back to it, because there was like two halves of a mule deer there. Yeah. We were trying to get – I mean, I, it, it was – uh I would have liked to have taken part in that process, but as you saw, like it, it had a snowstorm. It was very late at night. I was trying to find the deer tag. Everything soaked. He, he just no. I, I thought it was genius. Man, I didn't know about that trick. You, you guys weren't familiar with that. Cutting no. them that way to so they weigh the same. It's the first I'd seen it. No, then he t- cocks the head over the top of the the crossbars there, and shoop, out of there. Yeah, if, it, if if disrespect, if there could somehow be disrespect in getting something out cleanly and effectively, um, I don't I don't see it. And they leave the hide on just to protect. They like they leave the hide on to protect the meat, which is pretty common with horse people because you're not horse people. They're not always trying to find ways to make everything light, so they're able to do. It's like making everything light and compact and transportable isn't like their primary focus. Like they know how to use the horses for what they're best at. So a lot of horse guys leave hide on stuff because then you get home, skin the hide off, and it's all clean underneath. They use it like in substitute of a game bag. Then they oftentimes aren't looking to turn things into like a thousand bags of stuff. Two is is fine. Those guys are good dudes, man. They know what they know their business very well. Someone wants to know, can you cook mule deer ribs the same as whitetail ribs? You sure it wasn't the opposite? Well, you, either way, can you cook them the same way? Oh, cook the mule. It's the same question. Yeah. Anything. Anything. Any kind of ribs. Doesn't matter. Someone's wondering how you got the meat home from Wyoming. I'd love to hear a little more about your post-hunt slash post-field dressing logistics. Yanni? Yeah, um, I did the same thing just recently on my Colorado elk hunt. Uh, We've been flying, traveling with empty Yeti hopper coolers. But we drove to Wyoming. Yeah, we just drove Uh, them. Oh, I forgot. We drove those deer home. Caught them in a lie. (laughs) You're right. You're right. You know what? That question, there there was some more to that question that Spencer skipped over that was asking if we had checked him in on the flight. Well, because I, I knew that you didn't fly from Wyoming oh, to Montana. Man, that's, why, good. that's why I skipped um, it. But I think this guy wants to know how we do it. Yeah, how we do it when we do fly. Later so, on. yeah, like those guys are saying, on, on that particular one, they just went home uh, probably just about that way. Mine was quartered because we packed it off the mountain, but they probably just went into a cooler. Anyways, for flying. Or road trips. Hell, for transporting. For transporting, Yeah. But I'm going to get into the flying because this works pretty slick. But anyways, those Yeti hoppers, soft-sided coolers, we get the meat cold. If we can freeze it, we freeze it, but it's usually just like large muscle chunks, not fully processed. It doesn't look like it's going to go right into my freezer. I'm just trying to get it cold. So literally on my last hunt, I put I, I, the meat came off the mountain, boned out. I took it to a processor cooler, and I said, how much is it going to take? For me just to store it here for a while. He said he said X amount, whatever it was per day. So it was in there for three or four days. The day before we left, I went and picked it up and just shoved 
giant chunks of meat into these Yeti hoppers as full as I could get them and zipped them shut. Now, they're heavy, they're overweight, so you're going to have to pay for that on the flight home. Now, you're forgetting a couple steps here. You Okay. You hadn't gone into Ziplocs. Nope. And then you hadn't lined the nope. hopper with a contractor bag. Nope. Okay. I had cooled, clean, not bloody, just Do meat. Do you mind me stepping in here? That had been setting on a wire rack, getting air circulated yeah. around it, like in a nice, you know, meat cooler, right? One thing that's going to get you in trouble. Yeah. Oh, I learned this. This I, don't, I hesitate to even tell people this. Someone from Alaska Airlines was telling me, they can't, they won't ditch stuff based on smell. It has to be an overpowering odor. Okay. I was like, really? She's like, yeah, we can't. It just, like, if something smells, we can't like, decide to get rid of it. Did you? But what she said we can do, anything dripping blood, right? <laughs> it's, it's okay to not handle it. So That's I like, what I've heard too. I like to line the hopper with a good contractor bag, put my meat in there, and then zip tie or electric tape that contractor bag shut. Because I've heard from multiple airline people that anything dripping bodily fluids definitely is okay to like find its way to like the dumpster. Yeah, and like I said, this is a particularly particular instance where i knew the meat was just extremely i don't want to say dried out but like i said it's been laying in a cooler with air going around it with a fan for three or four days like i just until you froze it and then thawed it out then it would probably have Mm -hmm. juice or blood or whatever you want to call that stuff from the cells breaking down that it would leak but um what else you told me yes if you strip the velvet off antlers let it dry because she said if someone touches that antler and gets that blood mm. on their hands, they don't have to handle it. It's a good tip. Yeah. But speaking of antlers in a head, this was going to be a real conundrum. Because that same shop, I'm like, oh, I saw it. They did, they did like the, you know, skull cleaning, like a quick European mount. Mm-hmm. Like, how much is that? You know, I'm thinking I'll just pay for it. No big deal. Well, they wanted 350 bucks. I'm like, so, to, to, to freedom mount a skull? Yes. I'm like, all right, I'll figure something out. You have got to be kidding. What's the world coming to? <laughs> Seems like that's going right. So oh what I had I had pretty much a head that had been sat in the garage for four days now. And it was, you know, kind of clean. I had pulled the eyeballs out and pulled some meat off of it. Brain's still in it. Um, Actually, we had to pull the brains out because it's because uh, of CWD. We didn't know if we had to. I think we actually checked, and you didn't have to for that. There are some places. Don't want to make this confusing, but there are some places where you have to be very careful about transporting brain matter, bones, and different parts of animals across state lines, and even from unit to unit in different states. So, if you're going to do that with any kind of meat, read the regs closely. Um, so, I thought that was going to be the case. So we took we pulled the brain out. But I still had like this kind of semi, wasn't rotten yet, but just a bloody, meaty head, had some dirt on it, and you can't just walk into the airport like that. So I took some shop towels, like basically a blue paper towel, kind of put it on there, wrapped a little bit of duct tape on there to hold that on there. Then I took a just a regular old grocery sack, like a, you know, the small one, if you just go and get a few things from the grocery, wrapped that around the head, then I went 
balls to the wall with duct tape and covered the whole head and turned it into like a piece of art that just looks like a skull covered in duct tape. Now, the only, that was fine for that. It was contained, right? You did, you get, really, did you get garden holes or pipe insulation then? Yeah. So then I went and got a, a it was perfect. It was like, they sell like, I didn't know, eight and like 10 foot chunks of garden hose. And uh, you cut about, I don't know, four or five inches of garden hose and stick it onto the end of a tine. And then basically just, you don't even have to tape the top part, the open part above the tine, just to keep the garden hose onto the tine. You tape that up and they want you to do that so it's not sharp. Because if they put a head with tines into the bottom of a um, airplane and someone tosses a you know a piece of luggage on top of it, it could very well go right through it, right? So you're protecting other people's stuff by taping that. Yeah, or that and, plane goes down and all of a sudden that antler comes crashing up through the floor of the plane. Right. You get a time before you burn up. <laughs> so anyways, yeah, I checked that and the guy had zero questions. Just like put a tag on it and stuck it in. And then I, it was interesting. They loaded it. It was the very last piece of gear to go onto the plane. I say gear, luggage. Yeah. She walked it over and handed it to the person. Didn't even ride the conveyor belt. They took care of my uh, antlers very very well. That's great. Yeah. So it's I, nice when people are like that. Yeah. Because you always coming in with something like that, you're always a little bit like, what am I... You know, what am I running into? Flying home with my kids care, but we come in and they're like, welcome. Mm-hmm. Welcome. Well, they're Anchorage and Air Alaska Airlines. They're used to that. You know? Those are in Fairbanks. Fairbanks um, yeah. yeah, you come in there with a polar bear. They're like, <laughs> well, please wrap his claws in something. Pipe when we, insulation. <laughs> when we flew home from Sonora, you guys just carried those bucks on. Just a small. Yeah. But small I've, seen, I've seen people get turned away. Oh, really? Yeah, you know, I've seen people get turned away. I saw the other day, speaking of flying with stuff, I saw the other day a guy getting a major, major fight. He was fighting with the TSA guy so bad. He had speed loaders. So he had a hard case with his pistol stuff. He's some kind of competitive shooter, I could tell, by all of his shirts and guys he was with. And you're supposed to, like, when you fly with ammo, you're supposed to fly with ammo in its original box or a container made for ammunition. Yep. He had a hard case with his pistol. In it, he had all of his ammo loaded into speed loaders. Mm. And the TSA guy's like, no. And he's like, I fly all over. You know, the first thing you say to anybody is you talk about how much you fly all over the place, right? I fly with this deer head everywhere I go. Never before. But he lays that on him, and this guy's like not giving an inch. The dude gets so heated that all of a sudden two cops come. And one cop comes and stands back, like, to survey the situation, Right. And the other cop goes out to engage with the dude. And it was the most genius piece of policing I've ever seen. Because you could, the cop's like, wants to, def- here's a guy standing there with like a pistol in an airport, right? Arguing over speed loaders and he's getting heated up. Yeah, and this guy can shoot good. So the policeman comes up and the policeman's like, the TSA dude's basically his colleague. They both work in the same airport. So you can see that he can't alienate the TSA guy. And he comes up and explains that in my in, he's, in defending the TSA guy, you can tell he doesn't agree with the TSA guy, but he said, we have a job of interpreting. In a, in a situation like this, we interpret the situation, we interpret the law, and it's for courts to figure that out later. But in the moment, we need to make a judgment call. This is the judgment call this man has made. 
Then the guy's still getting heated up. This, this police guy takes the guy's speed loaders and says, I will get these held for you. And when you're coming through town again, I'll come and bring them to you. You let me know. Here's my business card. Dude, calm right down. Nice. Didn't fly with his speed loaders. The cop, like, soothed everybody out. I even gave him, like, a nice job as he's walking away. Because this dude was getting (laughs) heated up, man. And he came and just dissolved that shit. Nice. Like, dissolved that shit. That's great. Was there ammo? They were loaded, you said. He Instead of having his pistol rounds and boxes, he had them in all these speed loaders. Right. And I don't know why it never occurred to the guy just to, like... But you're screwed in the airport because you can't go take all the ammo and throw it in the trash can. They're not going to let that fly. No. But, so, if he, but I'm surprised if he had needed those speed loaders, like say for the competition that maybe he was flying to, that he would have kept those and just... He was going... I knew he was going home. Oh. He was headed home. No, it was a great bit of policing. It was good. Everybody saved face. No one was like... Yeah. Nice. Everybody. Then I saw that same police guy again later in the airport and I almost went up and said something to him that I started thinking he'd think I was creepy. <laughs> <laughs> In the making of all nine seasons, how many times has the camera crew scared off an animal you were hunting? Only once. All the animals. <laughs> all the time. What was the once? <laughs> I'm joking. They, they, they spook a lot of them, but they spot a lot of them. It's a real like <laughs> They spook a lot and spot a lot. Are they carrying binoculars? Oh, they, they get into it. Yeah. They, they, uh, they, they, we got some camera guys that have become... Uh, like very enthusiastic about glassing, <laughs> and everybody spooks a lot. They, they we spook them, we spot them, they hear them. It's just yeah, it's tough with a bunch of dudes. It's there's a lot of complications. There's a lot of good that comes out of it. You know, a lot of eyeballs, man. Yeah, you don't got to worry about missing something that comes close by. What are you doing differently with the cinematography this season? It has a different feel, but in a good way. Uh, I'll let Yanni handle that one. Uh, the answer is nothing. <laughs> um, if you felt that way and, and saw something, you know, you can certainly um, send me an email to uh, the info at Meat Eater. Is it info? Do we have that? Spencer, you know. What do they send emails to when they send them to general email inbox? I don't know. I don't know how those all get there. Well, how do you get a... It's like contact at or something Just hit the contact uh, page on the website. A lot of good stuff comes But I can tell you that, you know, just about everybody that we worked with on that season has been working with us for quite a few years. And um, just through tweaks and and polishing, you know, it gets better and and, and better, hopefully. Always changing, always upgrading and changing equipment. And then you like to think that people just get better at what they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... People just get better. The editors get better. Everyone's just growing. There's know? a thing that happens, too, is that um, the camera operators that you use a lot, this probably isn't what this person's getting at, but the camera operators that you use a lot start to get a real sixth sense. They kind of understand, like, they start to understand how animals, like, they understand how the situations play out, how the interactions play out, Um and just through exposure to it, I think, get a sense of, of also body language that people have, right? And 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 and, and they get like they kinda like meld into it in a better way and they sort of know, you know, 
uh, for instance, like if the importance of kind of like tying in a person and an animal, right? So if you're like, oh, there's a deer over there, right? That rather than showing the hunter and then showing the deer and showing the hunter and showing the deer, they kind of get where they position themselves to get the hunter and the deer in the same shot, right? And that just comes from exposure and seeing these things happen again and again. And also from a good relationship between the the the, the host or talent or guest or whoever and the shooter where they start to really understand. You know, if you hunt with someone all the time, like a buddy, you, you just kind of know what they're thinking and doing, you know? Like you're walking along grouse hunting and you don't say like, okay, we'll stay roughly this far apart and, you know, and whatever. You just, without talking, you just understand what each other's up to. Um, you don't just then wander off and leave the guy, you know? Uh, so just through that proximity, I think a lot comes out of that. Um, that could lead perhaps to some of what they're talking, what they're noticing. And I imagine also just like equipment and, and getting better at your craft. Behind the scenes, what are your meals like and your snacks like before obtaining fresh meat? Just depends, man. <laughs> All depends. Yeah, if we're hunting out of a uh, like a house that we've rented or staying at someone's place, uh, we we rarely base out of a hotel. So we usually like to base out of a place where we can cook our own meals. And in that case, I mean, it's not too different than what uh, – you might be having a home for dinner. I mean, we usually have spaghetti night and we have taco night. And, you know, it's just <laughs> brat pretty night. Brat <laughs> night. We, I mean, it's definitely stuff that that I can and, and Seth can cook up quickly. Um, you know, because after a long day of hunting, last thing you want to do is spend a bunch of time in the kitchen. So stuff that we can whip up quickly. I was going over just with Chester to molester last night. Yeah, he's he's he in charge of meals you gotta now. Go simple. Yeah, no, he simple. tried to go too complicated one time. I know. <laughs> gotta go simple. Yeah, yeah. people and are tired. It's late. Yep. And uh, quick, we, we often bring. We'll bring our own meat. Yeah, you know, we were talking about that shoots. too. Yeah, if you're gonna travel with some uh, empty Yeti hoppers, you might as well pack in a couple roasts and stuff. But some trips we do all freeze dry, like maybe instant oatmeal in the morning, all freeze dry, and for lunch just like. Have a thing of mayo, have some cheese, have some salami and flatbread. Mm-hmm. Very simple. Bunch of granola bars. Now, on the Wyoming hunt, we had a full-on cook. Yeah, they were cooking because oh, it was, was an outfitted, outfitted trip, so they did, like, outfitter meals. Yeah, which at Bacon. first we, we weren't going to do. But then I figured, you know, it'll give us more time to, uh, you know, focus on the hunting, mm-hmm. come home again, tired. I mean, because— Full meals. Full meals, yeah. Because, like, that night you killed your buck. I mean, you were in, like, four, five hours after dark. Mm -hmm. You know? Come back, someone, like, made all kinds of cool food. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think we put on weight. They made ham. During that trip. I think it's a game changer when someone else is cooking because we don't have to worry about it. Gives us a lot more time to do other things. Mm -hmm. What's it like to pack out an elk at elevations above 10,000 feet? And are there noticeable physical differences between elk at lower elevations and higher elevations? Man. It doesn't even have to be 10,000 feet, man. If you come from sea level, uh, 5,000 feet might be very arduous and and a tough pack out. I still don't hear people. I can't think of a conversation where someone was – Factoring elevation above just distance. You know, you're talking about like 
you might say, man, by myself, I don't think it would, I think it would be irresponsible for me to kill an elk more than a mile from my truck. I've never heard someone say, um, hunting by myself, it would be irresponsible for me to kill an elk more than a mile from my truck at said elevation. Like, I just don't, it's a real thing and it factors in, but I don't know that I hear people, maybe they should pay attention to that because it's a major, major issue. It is. But if if anything, at 10,000 feet, uh, most places during archery elk season, um, and then as you get later, it'll be even more to your advantage, but, uh, it's going to be pretty cool. Like above 10,000 feet, there's not a lot of days that are actually going to, you take care of your meat and get it hung on the north side of the tree, that it couldn't hang there for two or three days and be just fine, giving you plenty of time to do the actual work. Mm -hmm. In terms of the difference of the animals, I don't know that a layman isn't going to look and know, but there's no way there's not a difference in... There's no way there's not a difference in fitness between some crazy elk in Colorado living at 10, 11,000 feet and an elk living at 2,000 feet. There's no way there's not a difference in uh, um, that the 10,000-foot elk is not going to smoke the 2,000-foot elk in a race at 10,000 feet. I mean, how, how would it, you know, there's no way. It's got to be just like anybody else. Like, you live at a high elevation, you learn how to perform at a high elevation. Mm-hmm. But I don't, you know, I'm not going to like dissect one and be like, look at this. See, he's got a. Did you learn anything watching Jesse butcher the nil guy? Mm, yeah, quite a bit. Um, cooking more than butchering. But the biggest thing I picked up from him butchering that I now do is uh, that cleaver rubber mallet, man. Yeah, the cleaver trick. Was like I always knew about it, you know, and I'd seen it. But like to really see someone who's good at a, a rubber mallet and a cleaver, it's nice, man. I started doing that even in my kitchen, cleaving a rubber mallet. It's just very precise feeling. Because a lot of people take cleaver and start just wailing away at stuff. But when you put that blade right, you would want it, and then give it a love tap with a rubber mallet. It's so precise. Well, I think, too, I've like messed up a cleaver or two because when you're whacking bones with a cleaver, that blade cannot withstand that those impacts. And you end up like really dinging and like putting full-on waves in, mm-hmm. in your blade edge. Especially as grandpa's old carbon. And it's probably you know. not meant to do that. It's meant to be used the way oh, that, Jesse was using That it. little love tap with a mallet, dude. It's like just on a – I was doing deer ribs one, even on just a home cutting board. I was like – so I usually hacksaw my ribs shorter, but I was like, what the hell? And you take that cleaver and lay it on her, nice sharp cleaver and that mallet. And it's just like, oh, it's satisfying, man. It's just like, so that, that was one of the biggest things. But mostly I learned from him uh, um, cooking. I mean, he's just like a thousand times better of a cook than I am. When you're hunting in Wyoming and your guides wouldn't do anything on the Sabbath, what would have happened if you guys still had tags to fill? Oh, they wouldn't have cared if we'd gone hunting. We would have been hunting. Could have you used the horses? No. No. Their horses rest on Sunday. Oh, it's it's everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, no, they don't. If you're with those guys, then you want to go do something. They're not going to care. If you said, hey, I want to go fishing, they'd be like, oh, go down there. That's here, why we hunt. packed my buck out on foot yeah. and on what, our backs. What about the cook? I can't remember what. I believe that their employees took the Sunday off, too. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't imagine that, that uh, I don't imagine that they would say that we are going to take the day off and we'd prefer that our horses take the day off, but then the, an employee of theirs would be obligated to work. But then again, she certainly made breakfast and dinner for us that day. 
Yeah, because I think like just eating, you know. I mean, yeah, yeah. You, you know, gotta draw really, the line somewhere. I can't really. Yeah, I can't really remember. Um, but no, they're very uh, observant of their religion in a in a like kind of a, you know an admirable admirable respectful way, and it would have been never been that we could have done whatever we wanted, you know. And it's not you know they're like quite upfront about it. It, it was totally cool. I, I I actually appreciated it. On the Wyoming hunt, how many horses were with you in camp? I don't know, man. Close to twenty, I bet. We it's it's not like one to one though, like hu- one human to one horse. No, because no, they had pack. Had, they had pack animals. Yeah. Then we got crew. We had a huge string because of all the gear and packing in pelican cases and shit. Yeah, I don't think it was twenty. No, probably yeah, probably closer to fifteen ish. Yeah. I'd guess they probably each led a string of four or five, and then plus all of us. Yeah, solid fifteen. There's a lot that goes into that horse business, man. My sister in law knows a lot about horses. She knows more about horses than she can even begin to tell you, because it doesn't. It's not even things that. You know what I mean? Like the same way when you're talking to people, you're making all these calculations and observations about their personality and stuff. And you, later you say like, oh, I got, you know, you can't be like, I like him because, you know, this, 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 and this. You just don't think about it that way. But people that are around horses, man, they look at a horse and they just see something that I don't see. <laughs> there, there's a lot happening under the surface. And to keep all those horses moving in the same direction stuff without getting all worked up and pissed off, it's 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 they, something, man. They were hard working dudes. Yeah. Yeah. They would be up well before us and go to bed. Wait, I've just taken care of the horses. I mean, that's a lot of horses to take care of. Yeah, you gotta draw licenses to hunt in that area, but I'm telling you, man, um, I would without hesitation. In terms of like getting your money's worth and having someone work, like I without hesitation recommend doing a guided hunt. In terms of like someone that like wants to hunt hard and is willing to put in the time, and those guys are hard workers. Last question. It's probably the most common question a meat eater got. <laughs> when will there be part two? Soon. Soon. Early twenty twenty one, right? Soon. 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 <laughs> Coming soon. Thank you, Spencer. Good work, Spencer. Seth, thank you. Absolutely. I'm going to start thanking Good people. Good work, Seth. I'm going to start thanking people in an awkward <laughs> way all the time. Man. Thank you, Giannis. You're welcome. Thank you. Good work, Yanni. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. <laughs> This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need, and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy 
on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.